everyone. Namaste and good evening to all of you. I'm glad to be together with you in this satsang, which is the last satsang before the great celebration of Mahashivaratri, which is happening next week on Tuesday. And um, I thought that because Mahashivaratri is coming up, I would like to tell you a few things a few words about Mahashivaratri to try to give to you a metaphysical, philosophical, spiritual approach to this great ceremony. Not only to inspire you to participate, but also to inspire you to participate with the right heart. I have to say that at the time when I personally started doing yoga practice, a regular yoga practice, I had been interested in spirituality for about three years already, maybe a bit more than that. And if six months after I had got into yoga, somebody would have taken me and said, look, I have a group of friends, or there is this school called Agama, and they very beautifully celebrate Maha Shivaratri on Tuesday evening. Come join, just to see. I would have been very cautious. Where I came from, a culture which was atheistic, and rationalistic, jumping directly into a thing like Mahashivaratri would have looked to me definitely as I'm joining some sort of Hindu religious celebration, which 99% of it, that's what it is. And I would have not considered myself a Hindu, a member of any Hindu religious caste or community. And therefore, it would be exactly as somebody would take me to a Sufi ceremony where they whirl counterclockwise and they pray to Allah. I wouldn't feel like I'm a Sufi myself. I would feel like I'm a guest in a weird ceremony which is definitely of a religious kind. And the same happens with Mahashivaratri. We started celebrating openly Mahashivaratri about 15 years ago, and it's become a beautiful, beautiful tradition. Anybody who has been to at least one Mahashivaratri night and knows the magic and the power of it, the grace, the effects of it. But on the other hand, this makes many of us who already are in yoga lose our referential point, lose our ground zero, 
and not manage to see it with the eyes of the people who see it from the fringe, from the edge of it, people who are more or less outsiders or semi-outsiders. And I'm saying it again. 40-something years ago when I started doing yoga on a regular basis and being full-on into yoga, considering yoga my spiritual path, and even understanding yoga as a spiritual path, that means I was no longer just an atheistic, rationalistic student. I was already into it with my practice and with my experiences. And should somebody have taken me directly to a Mahashivaratri like it's going to happen in five days from now, I would have felt at least awkward. I would have felt maybe even cautious. Because for somebody who is not for a long time into these things, and especially with the Indian style around, it sounds a little bit cultish, sectarian, religious, bizarre. And I think one of the reasons for which I had so much success in my life teaching yoga was that I never wanted to touch this sectarian, cultish, too much religious aspects of it because I did not come from that place and for me, for the first one year, two years, three years maybe of yoga, it would have been very difficult to cross certain lines in terms of spiritual and religious behavior, especially due to a feeling of awkwardness. I'm saying it again, perhaps it's a very good word to define the attitude. And that's why we all know that yoga at the highest level, at yoga at the essential level, it deals with spiritual matters, with the highest spiritual matters. And if you choose to ignore the spiritual part of yoga, you are really not doing yoga. It's a decapitated yoga. It's a yoga without the top of it. It's a yoga without the center of it. It's a yoga without the essence of it. The people who invented yoga, let's put it like this, the rishis or Shiva himself as the first guru of yoga, they have done yoga with a purpose not of improving your digestion or with a purpose of controlling your fear in your daily life. I'm just giving silly examples. They created yoga with the purpose of the human being finding himself, finding themselves, finding the fundamental answers, obtaining a state of consciousness, of clarity and awakening, like opening your eyes for the first time in a million years and having a state of awakening in which you can see, 
you can experience, feel very, very clearly the essence of existence and the reality, the great questions which are plaguing the human being. Who am I? Where do I come from? What am I doing in this place? How, how should I live my life properly? And all those. That's why, actually, when I taught yoga in many, many first years of my life, I always approached the higher levels of yoga with um, flannel feet, as they say. That means on tiptoes, very gently. Very gently because I always identified with my students and I thought that if my teachers wouldn't have educated me in yoga gently, they might have chased me away simply because uh, there were a lot of things which I wouldn't be able to swallow without demonstration, without practice, without doing my own thinking, without making my own mind, without studying the tradition, reading the scriptures, and all that. Today, many of our yoga teachers, when they teach yoga, even on what we call the level one of yoga, the first level, they kind of cut the corners and they cut to the chase. They speak directly about God, reincarnation, metaphysics of different kinds. And of course, they would tell to their students, won't you come to Mahashivaratri on Tuesday? It's going to be very beautiful. And again, for some people, it's going to be very beautiful, like you go to a Zulu ceremony in Africa. And it's beautiful, but it's anthropologically beautiful. You are not part of it. You don't identify with it. There is something in you which cautiously wants to just look from a distance, even if you want to make a prostration to the Shiva Linga or something, you do it like an experiment, like let me do it to see if I feel something. Which of course is a good scientific attitude. It shows an open mind, is the attitude of an experimentator, but psychologically you still want to keep a distance because you definitely are not those things. That's why... The nature of teaching yoga, even in the school which I am inspiring as the main teacher, has changed over the years. Some things go much more directly. Sometimes I'm wondering how many more students would stay and do yoga for one year, two years, five years, ten years if they would be taken easily, more gently, not thrown directly to the sharks, not thrown directly to the lions, like, hey, you came to yoga, and this is about you making friends with God, or whatever understanding is given to those people. When my teachers taught me about the highest levels in yoga, they always used philosophical terms 
I would say, even ambiguous philosophical terms like the plane number seven of the human being materialized in the crown chakra. It's something which is about the level seven of energy. It is something which is about consciousness without insisting too much on the nature of that word. It is something about the absolute, which is a typical Greek philosophical concept, that there is something which, at least philosophically speaking, is absolute. And if anybody would ask somebody to define the absolute, nobody really can, because that's why it is absolute. If it would be relative to other things, then you would define it. It's big, it's not small, it's good, it's not bad, it's this, it's not that. But those are all relative terms, and the absolute is a philosophical term which cannot be defined, and precisely through the fact that it does not define, well, intuitively, it gives you goosebumps. Intuitively, it makes you understand that, wait a second, even as a concept, there exists something which is unsurpassed, which is indescribable, which is uncircumscribed, which is really not definable by words, not uh, understandable by the human mind. And in this way, this will give you a concept of what we so liberally call God or the Supreme Consciousness, but without at the same time putting, uh, putting a gross finger on it, you know, like, yeah, this, the absolute, and it's this, and it's that. No? And in this way, allowing to the subconscious mind to bring its own contribution, allowing the subconscious mind to open up slowly, slowly, gradually. Again, many of the yoga teachers, and again, this is not that I regret something which was done without my permission. I'm simply describing trends which exist even in Agama, they are in love with their own higher self, they are in love with consciousness, they are in love with the Absolute, they are in love with eternity, they are in love with immortality, they are in love with the Absolute Freedom, and because of all of that, they are very eager to pass it to their students. Either the students are fully prepared for it or not. You just throw them in the pond and hope they will manage to swim, hope that they will spontaneously learn the dog style of swimming or something like that. And thus, I'm telling all this because Mahashivaratri is something very beautiful for many yogis from India. It's something very beautiful for all the advanced yogis from Agama, and especially the people who manage to understand. That's what I'm talking about, to understand, to make a bridge between their own skepticism and rationalism and what the cosmic consciousness is supposed to mean. For all those people, it's very beautiful 
and very rewarding. And again, I sometimes wonder how some people who are on the fringe of all this, on the edge of a spiritual movement like Agama, of a spiritual organization or yoga school, how they relate to it, trying, perhaps out of pure peer pressure, like everybody around me does Mahashivaratri, I guess I'm supposed to do it also. And it was nice, I have to admit, it was beautiful, aesthetical, it gave me warmth in my heart, the musicians were playing admirably, and all that, but in a certain way, it still feels sometimes like you are thrown in the pond and asked to, to swim. So your first lesson of swimming is just jumping into the pond without any prior knowledge. That's why it is my intent tonight to gradually give you a, a way of understanding and to make you acquainted to this so that you can do it without having any feeling of being violated in your choices or feeling like, uh, I don't know, I didn't have time to think about this for a long time enough, and this and that. So, our story, to understand what, how did we get to this Mahashivaratri, which it's not Agama who invented it, Far, far from that. It's a pan-Hindu tradition. First of all, it all starts from the fact that this universe is based on consciousness. The highest form of organization of energy what we call the energy of the seventh plane of the human being, the energy of Sahasrara, the crown chakra, the energy, if you prefer, of the seventh body or of the seventh kosha of the human being, is symbolically called, in tantric schools like Kashmiri Shaivism, it is called Chit or pure consciousness. And this pure consciousness is something which people, like if I say, are you conscious? People have, like the opposite of it would be to be unconscious. If you are knocked out, you are unconscious. So to be conscious means to be with me, to listen to me, to follow what I am saying, to evaluate, to be aware of where you are and what is happening, to be present, to have presence of spirit, and a lot of other things. So people, although consciousness is almost impossible to define, people have a sort of intuitive understanding of what consciousness is, and sometimes this intuitive understanding is not enough, really. We know that human beings have consciousness and animals don't have a full-fledged consciousness. We know that animals are intelligent. They can be loyal, like a dog. They can be smart, like a horse, or like a crow, or like, you know, 
they can, so we understand animal intelligence, but when it comes to consciousness, consciousness is tested in a small child by inconspicuously making a spot on its right cheek, like putting some dirt, and when the child looks in the mirror, it immediately goes like, what's this? Like he knows it's here, although he sees it in the mirror. He knows that what he sees in the mirror, it's him. Animals don't realize this. They cannot, they don't pass this test. And children don't pass it until they start speaking around the age of two. Together with the capacity to articulate speech, there comes a mysterious capacity which is called consciousness, where you realize that there is this who am I, where am I, what's happening right now, this presence. Some people call it mindfulness in Buddhism, but I think it's a very delusive word because mindfulness takes us with the thought to mind and it's not about the mind. It's about something other than the mind, this mindfulness. So I prefer not to mix the terms. I prefer to keep it to awareness or presence or something similar. So this consciousness, if we say that the whole universe is consciousness, it's exactly like Abhinavagupta who says if there were no consciousness, we wouldn't even be sitting here making this discourse. Like there would be no way of evaluating the reality. The fact that you know that out there there is a sun and a moon and a jar from which you drink water, a mug, or that the sky is blue, all those things are processed through the consciousness. So the very fact that you ask yourself if there could exist a consciousness, universal, that's consciousness itself. That's why from the standpoint of consciousness, we are looking at it right now. You are like a fish in the ocean. You are in the middle of the water, but you don't notice it as being water because it's your natural habitat. This universe is made of consciousness. And there are various metaphysical theories which are way beyond the scope of tonight's speech which says that, first of all, consciousness is related to gravitation. Wherever there is gravity, like stars, like the curvature of the space about which Albert Einstein postulates, there somehow consciousness accumulates. That's why the first in an ocean of consciousness, the first focuses of consciousness, have been the stars. The stars even and especially the old stars, they are the ones which first accumulated consciousness. That's why the fact that we share in this consciousness, in our pool here, it is due to the sun. The sun creates the playground in which in this solar system there is a manifestation of consciousness and then on a little planet somewhere there are seven, eight billion of us who are more or less conscious, who have 
degrees of consciousness. Not everybody being equally conscious. You cannot say that a drunk who is ignoring himself and self-destructive has the consciousness of Shankaracharya. Qualitatively and idealistically speaking, yes, they both share in the same consciousness, but one lives with the third eye open non-stop, and the other one has had three conscious moments in his whole life for five minutes each, and even those not very profound. Thus, the first postulate is that without consciousness, we wouldn't have consciousness. It is a paradox of the materialistic and rationalistic thinkers that they think that we have life, but the universe is dead, that we have intelligence, but the universe is stupid, and that we have consciousness, but the universe is again dead or unconscious. According to the laws of correspondence, which you learn in the first day of yoga, and according to the law of resonance, nothing comes out of nothing. Nothing ever could come out of nothing. So if there is consciousness in me, and I'm asking you simply, my dear brothers and sisters, where do we come from? Where do we go? Why are we here? Therefore, I manifest consciousness. Then that consciousness must come from somewhere. It's not an artifact. It's not an artificial growth, a sort of bizarre electrochemical function in my brain which exists in me and does not exist in the rest of the universe. Even if it exists only on 8 billion people on this planet, still, when you put together 8 billion times the consciousness of one individual, you still get a whole bunch of consciousness. You still get a sea of consciousness somewhere, somehow. And thus, I'm not going to insist on this one because the deal is very clear about this. This consciousness is obvious only from a certain level of consciousness and above. When the great Vivekananda of India asked his Guru Ramakrishna, because he could not perceive it, and he, he, we talk about Vivekananda, who was a highly intelligent, educated, accomplished individual. And when he asked Ramakrishna, what is this universal consciousness that you keep talking about? Can you see it? Ramakrishna looked at him with the clarity, with the eyes of a child, and he said, I can see it better than I can see you now. And then there are only two possibilities. Either Ramakrishna is fucking crazy and has to be committed into an institution, or there is something, indeed. And the fact that a highly educated man like Vivekananda cannot see it, could not at that time, later he did, it shows very clearly 
we say in a certain language that this consciousness is hiding from itself. It creates what is called maya, and due to this maya, the very people who are the repositories of this consciousness, like human beings, 99.9% of the human beings are not sure about the existence of a universal consciousness, of an absolute consciousness, of an unsurpassed Anuttara consciousness. And because of this, the only way in which consciousness has been made visible to people is either through their natural evolution, that means there comes a day when an apple is red and ripe and sweet, and then it's ready to be picked up. So either through a natural growth or through spiritual practice, spiritual practice being nothing else but a method of accelerating the individual evolution. So we are saying the same thing, but we are saying it in a more proactive way that you do something about your evolution. And of course, we can never ignore, and it's always there behind the scenes, that there is also simply something which is called grace, which means the consciousness can make itself known to itself. After it hides itself from itself through the process of maya, then also one day it can decide to make itself, now you see me, now you don't. Yeah? It can pull the curtain and make itself known. And thus, it is not my purpose tonight to try to demonstrate to you in any way the existence of consciousness. Because it can be demonstrated only when you see it, only when you feel it, only when you experience it. And that means reaching nirvana, reaching liberation, reaching concretely and in actual fact states of samadhi, especially the big ones. And therefore, I am of course here to tease you, to tempt you, to say you could see it with your own eyes, and I hope you will. In the end, it's not something which I can do or anybody can do. We can only open the door, but you have to step through that door in this school with the help of yoga, with the help of Tantra, with the help of such methods, we have the heritage, the spiritual heritage, and the great gift, the great grace, to be able to administer such formidable dynamite, that anybody who wishes to give it a try can come and give it a try. And anybody who wants to floor the pedal and go all the way can floor the pedal and go all the way and obtain the results. Thus, 
It's not my purpose to convince you that we live in an ocean of cosmic consciousness, which is so very easy, but so very scary to call God, because the name God has been used along the last 2,000 years and more in various ways, some of them being scary and confusing. And people always want to say, this God that you are talking to me about, it's not that God that they were talking. Actually, it's the same. I'm sorry to splash it right in your face. It's the same. But you cannot introduce to an intelligent person, to a rational person, you have to take it step by step. What is the energy of the seventh plane of your being? What energy is above the mind? What could be higher than intelligence and than the mind? What is the function of this presence? That even if I am intelligent, I can forget to ask the question, who am I? And I can ask the question, who am I, without being very intelligent. So it's not the same thing. It's two different things. And therefore, of course, pedagogically, it's much better to let people ask themselves the big questions. And just we as teachers, we just want to be there when people start having questions. When people start questioning. And especially when people start practicing and having some results, then they want to ask the teacher to know if they are on the right path, if they are going in the right place. So, I would say with a wonderful certitude that most people who are on a spiritual path, they already have the intuition of this consciousness. It's a big medieval philosopher who said, talking about God, he said, I wouldn't search for you, God, I wouldn't search for you if I wouldn't have found you already. Because somebody who hasn't found already considers that it's an idiotic thing to search. Because to search for what? for something about which you are not even sure. In the moment when you start searching and you do 10 minutes of Trataka or 10 minutes of Shambhavi Mudra or 10 minutes of Laya Yoga, in that moment you are sold and bought. In that moment you already found because that gives you the intuitive power to try to see it with your own eyes. You wouldn't try to see with your own eyes something which you don't even know if it exists. And therefore, the spiritual practitioner is one of those people, one in a thousand, who already intuitively believes in something, knows that there is something which is of the nature of immortality, of the nature of freedom, of the nature of universal consciousness. Intuitively you know. And of course your mind is still skeptical and it's torturing you with questions. 
your mind says, yeah, but what if you feel is not right? What if it is a wrong feeling and nevertheless something in your heart is steadfast and constant and says, yeah, yeah, keep asking stupid questions, you stupid mind, you stupid mental monkey. I am going there and doing my thing because I don't know why, but I feel that this thing is going in the right way. It's an intuition. It's not even a feeling. It's just an intuition somewhere deep in the being. And thus, spiritual seekers and many people who are intuitive on the face of this earth, they somehow have a concept of a fact that there could exist something higher than the mind, higher than the universal intelligence, something which is of a even higher quality, something called consciousness, which is equally universal, which is the supreme energy, the supreme level of existence, the supreme resonance, and even having this intuitive thought that actually you, in your life, in this life, in your body, still being alive, you will be able to taste it. You will be able to experience it. You will be able to see it. Five minutes, 25 minutes, 125 minutes. 72 hours, non-stop, whatever the case being, that you will be able to have this experience and that this experience can be repeated and multiplied and amplified. And this is how we got to spirituality, to religions, and human beings exception made of some uh, early Greek philosophers like Plato and Plotinus much later in the Neoplatonic philosophies of Greece, which were a little bit contemporary to the advent of Christianity. These people were able to conceive of something which they called the Absolute and which was much higher than the gods. The Greeks, the Romans, the Egyptians, and many, many others, they worshipped causal forms of intelligence, highly superior forms of intelligence, endowed with formidable power and capable to bend the space and time, and therefore capable to master destiny, and karma up till a certain point, and they were very happy with worshipping these deities, and they found out that they got a fertile life and spirituality from interacting with higher forms of intelligence. But the mind of the philosophers and the souls of the mystics they were not satisfied. They wanted to go all the way. They wanted to go till the point where you can't go further. They wanted to reach the top. 
of all this. And so they did, either more in a philosophical way or more in a religious way, like the prophets of old Israel, they managed to go to the point of not only conceiving of a one unified field of energy, of one ultimate supreme energy and consciousness, which does not need to be divided, which does not need to be relative to anything else, which is simply the ultimate reality. And because human beings cannot relate to that, maybe a philosopher here and there, he says, I want to be in the company of the absolute. But this absolute doesn't stir up pretty much any feeling, except for some high-level philosophical people endowed with a highly metaphysical intelligence. And thus, this God had to be personified. He just had to be made as a God of the gods, as they say in India. Deva, Deva. Maha, Deva. The deity above all the deity, the chief deity, the one where everything gets reduced to one. And that was simply from the anthropological need that people needed a friend. People needed something to personify. And this is how there started appearing the so-called different faces of God. In Zoroastrianism, their God was Ahura Mazda, which is very often personified by fire. You can see Ahura Mazda in the fire, and you do therefore fire sacrifices and so on. The Jews saw God as an angry, manipuristic, white-bearded man, with whom they called Jehovah, and in a hundred other names, Adonai, Sabaoth, and all the other divine names which are given to God. And they personified God, and this God was incomparable to any deity. Like when Moses was provoked to show the power of God, he beat the hell out of the Egyptians and their pathetic religion, which was able to go only up to deities. Then Moses called the help of Jehovah, which was the daddy of all the deities of this universe, and Jehovah gave them a big spanking and uh, some terrible lessons, you know, until they learned, okay, this guy has a God which is bigger than our gods. No, that was not the meaning. That was the meaning that that God was not a deity like other deities, but just bigger. The meaning was that that deity was qualitatively different, and it was to the deities as the deities are to the human beings. And in this way, human beings started giving a face and a name to this divine universal consciousness, which some of you have the intuition of, that's why you are searching for it, and every day you are standing on your head, you are doing your anuloma viloma pranayama, 
or whatever you do, and the message is, show yourself to me, show yourself to me. I want to feel you, I want to see you, I want the complete vision. I want to be able to have the experience of things before I die. Therefore, this concept evolved in various places and in, for example, Buddha gave to it a very neutral name like the Absolute, which is called the Buddha Nature and you don't know if it's a person or a thing. Uh, it's also called Shunyata sometimes and that means emptiness. And it's a, but it's still the Absolute Reality. The Vedantin people of India, they called it Brahman, which is a word which is very close to the word the Absolute from the old Greek philosophy. And also, it's like this Brahman, it's some sort of Absolute Reality, which is here, now, you share into it, you are it, Atman is Brahman, and this Brahman is pretty much impossible to define by words because it is not circumscribed by space, time, causality, authorship, and many other fundamental factors. Now that I made this story so long, we got to the whole point. In India, because they had difficulties with coping with this reality of spirit, they divided spirit in three parts. A part of the spirit which is in charge of creation, and they called it Brahma. A part of the spirit which is in charge of the opposite of creation, which means resorption, destruction, which they called Shiva. And a part of the divine consciousness, which is in between creation and destruction, and that's therefore called preservation or maintenance, and they gave to it the name of Vishnu. These three, Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, which are called in general Hinduism Trimurti, the three personalities or the three faces of God, they have a name, a face, they have been drawn, painted, carved, cast in bronze, and everything. And, therefore, in this way, people can relate to them. But it's a bit fishy, because you don't relate with the whole. You relate with one-third of the whole. If the whole is infinite, one-third of the infinite is still infinite. Infinite divided in three stays infinite. And thus, it was considered like, well, it's even like this, it's good enough. In time, some of the tantrics of India, they were dissatisfied with this ping-pong between God split in three parts, and they decided to conceptually unify all the parts and turn back to pure spirit and this pure spirit being united with mother nature as well with matter or energy. And this concept 
in the Tantric Yoga of India, in many of the Tantric Shaivistic schools, and especially in Kashmiri Shaivism, which is the top of the Hindu philosophies generated in history, they decided to make an abuse of names and to take one of those three names, Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, and turn it into the boss of all three. Like to have there hidden a sort of a gate towards an even higher level, which includes the triad. And this Shiva, sometimes called Mahadev, Devon Kedev, Devadev, and in Kashmiri Shaivism, Bhairava, this reality to be for them the symbol of the universal consciousness. What for some people was Jehovah, what for some people was the Father in heaven, what for some people was Allah, and what for some people was the Buddha nature and the void, for these people was called Shiva as a short for all the cosmic consciousness. That's why when we talk about Shiva in yoga, we don't talk about one of the three Murti, one of the three brothers, Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva. We talk about one called Bhairava, which is including Brahma and Vishnu and Shiva, and it is the complete cosmic consciousness. Well, human beings, especially in India and in Hinduism, they try to relate to this reality of Bhairava or Shiva. And humanity has just developed a family of methods of how to try to come close to this thing which is right here. It's right here and now, and still you feel, I haven't got it. It's right here and it is eluding me every second. It's right here and soon I'm going to die and I haven't seen it, I haven't tasted it. I don't know if I have a relationship with it because it's all theoretical. I cannot feel this relationship with this divine consciousness. And therefore, people have developed methods. And those methods are methods of prayer, invocation, incantations, rituals, and, of course, the one which really interests us is the very pragmatic instrument called yoga. Yoga, under its different forms, including tantric yoga, is just such a method. It's a method for opening your inner eye of intuition and making you see and experiencing directly what before you have only as an intuition. Well, by a sort of uh, circular thinking, that's the name in philosophy of it, in India, the author of yoga 
is Shiva himself. Like Shiva himself, because you philosophically discovered him, and you say, oh Shiva, although I can't see you and I can't feel you, I know you are all around, in the past, the present, and the future, everywhere, here, and nowhere at the same time. Because of that, I also know, or I'm asking you, give me a method to wake up. And that method was invented by Shiva, like, mm, given the fact that you have two legs, two arms, and a human body, you can do this, you can stand on your head, you can breathe first through the left nostril and then through the right nostril, you can do this, you can do that. And thus, there has appeared a conglomerate of methods, some of them smaller and some of them radical, which all together are the wonderful system of yoga and tantra. And this system is generated by God himself. This system is generated by Shiva, exactly as Shiva from his Mount Kailash, metaphorically living on a mountain, he throws down a ladder. He unfurls one of these flexible ladders no, down to you. And that's the ladder of yoga. In this way, especially the people who chose to practice the path of yoga, they felt very much connected to this image of God as Shiva, God as the guru of yoga, God as the creator of yoga, God as the first who practiced this yoga, not just invented it, but also practiced it, tested it. And in this way, in the world of yoga, while many yogis from India know about Vishnu and Brahma and Shakti and Ganesha and Skanda and I don't know what other spiritual realities, yogis from India like Ramakrishna, they were aware about God as being Allah, Do I interrupt? Okay. Just a second. Just tell me when we're on, if we're on. We're on, now. Eh? So as I was saying before this little technical interruption... There are yogis who may have lived on the fringe of the Islamic community and then they know that everybody in that community calls God Allah. There may have been yogis who had contact with Christianity like Ramakrishna and then they would know that in that community everybody calls God by the generic name Father 
or in the Jewish community where God would be called Jehovah or by whichever other names it has been chosen to invoke. And thus, the yogis have been aware of the fact that this universal spirit, which you can know only by experiencing it yourself, the fact that I'm talking about it means nothing except that I'm tickling you and teasing you and trying to convince you, trying to see if there is a voice inside you which answers to me, if there is somebody there who wants to see, who wants to find out. So the yogis, because they were given the amazing methodology of yoga, which is so complex and so multilateral, and adapted to all the types of temperaments. There is yoga for extroverted people, yoga for introverted people, yoga for loving people, yoga for intelligent people, yoga for social people, yoga for lonely people, yoga for any temperament that you can think of. Then, the yogis, they knew that their method had been generated by God who manifested as Shiva, as Bhairava, and they have always been very happy for this image of God. Not all the yogis from India, approximately 90% of the yogis from India. There are about 10% of the yogis of India, which are Vaishnavas, and for them God is Vishnu. They do a similar process via Vishnu. Vishnu, Mahavishnu, and thus, personification of God. But most of the classical yogis, due to the classical yoga texts, they are going into the direction of the Shaivas. And this is how we come to Agama. And this is how we come to Mahashivaratri. We in Agama, being yogis, we practice the methods of Shiva starting from Hatha Yoga, which is a Shiva teaching, and finishing with Kashmiri Shaivism, which are the highest of the Shaiva teachings. And, of course, it is morally and ethically impossible for us not to be in love with this image of God, not to be grateful not to experience gratitude, love, openness towards this image of God. And we understand very clearly that some people don't even know if for them there is a universal consciousness, there is therefore a God, there is eternity, there are any feelings towards that image of eternity, towards that symbol of eternity. And thus, of course, we all know that this opening up is a gradual process. And therefore, perhaps the Mahashivaratri should be something only for advanced yogis who really feel what they are talking about and who really have invested in their own spiritual ideals, archetypes. But, of course, 
On the other hand, it would be completely inconceivable to make an event like Mahashivaratri inaccessible for the rest of the world. So people are very welcome to come, even with the risk of getting afraid and saying, oh my gosh, is this some sort of Hindu cult or what is this? And uh, therefore, what is important is to understand that people need a celebration. Either you celebrate God on Christmas Day, or on Easter Day, or on the Passover, or on the Yom Kippur, or on the Ramadan, or on some other major event pertaining to your religion. You celebrate divinity on the day of enlightenment of Buddha, the Vesak festival of Buddha's enlightenment. Or wherever that is, people feel the need that at least once per year they should reactualize, they should recall, because there are very few people who can constantly, constantly, constantly long for God with great intensity. Those are crazy spiritual people like Ramakrishna, who can do it every day. For them, it is Mahashivaratri every day and every night. But normal people, they say, look, I can build up the longing, I can build up the longing, I can build up the love, and one night per year, okay, two nights per year, I can just unleash it. I can release it. After I release it, uh, it's like I'm exhausted spiritually a little bit, and I need again to build up. I can't do this all the time. That is why it is the wisdom of the great rishis, it is the wisdom of the creators of religions, that some of these events should be made periodical. Even for Shiva, they tried to make it every new moon, and that would be Shivaratri, the night when you cannot see the moon, the night when the moon is dark, the dark moon, the new moon as it is called in astronomy. But you know what? People were unable to give 120% once every 29 days. It was too soon. And that's why, eventually, the wisdom of India came up with the thing that, you know what? Let's have a good one once a year. Once a year, let's give it the whole hand. There are 12 more Shivaratris on every new moon in the rest of the year. And if any one of you feels like making a delicious Shiva meditation, or if any one of you feels like singing bhajans or working on crown chakra, go ahead, do that. It's fantastic. But not all the people are equally motivated. Not all the people have equal intensity. And therefore, as a compromise, given the human nature, in India... They said, let's have one every year. It always falls sometimes in February, March. And it is the new moon in February, March. Which means it's going to be coming Tuesday in five days from now. <clears throat> it's the night which contains in it in the morning there is the astronomical new moon. 
And thus, this is the celebration of Mahashivaratri. All the Shaiva Hindus of India, which might be around 200 million, 300 million of them, or more, they will celebrate it at that time. For most of them, it's just like Christmas. It's just like Easter. It's a religious ceremony in which you express your bhakti and your devotion towards God. Many people are fasting in that day. And many people, if they are healthy, they choose to stay up the whole night. Because you stayed up the whole night for a wedding party. You stayed up the whole night for, I don't know what, computer games or whatever you've done in your life. Then why not stay up one night for God? It's the minimum you can do. And thus, there emerged the tradition of one night per year given to Shiva. It's very meaningful that it's a night and not a day. You don't see the sun, you don't see the moon, it's just the void, it's just Akasha, it's just the deep night, the symbol of the spirit, and it's like when the full moon is there, that's a manifestation of Shakti, the counterpart of Shiva. It's like the universe is alive and humming with energy. And if you cut that energy, then what is left is just the night, the silence, the peace, the void. And that's why Shiva has been chosen to be celebrated as night. It's not the great day of Shiva. It's the great night of Shiva, precisely because of this connection with Purusha, with the void, with the pure spirit. And thus, you can better understand what we do here in Agama. On the outside, it looks like a religious ceremony. And then Shiva is so difficult to understand that in India, Shiva has a short list of 108 names. And then Shiva also has a long list of 1,008 names. He has been called a lot of names because he means all and everything. And you can find epithets of Shiva and features of Shiva everywhere and in every direction, even a thousand names can't express the totality of the cosmic consciousness. And thus, in the Mahashivaratri, here in Agama, I introduce the eight main faces of Shiva, typologies of Shiva, which clarify to you functions of this divine consciousness what does it do in the human universe, unseen by the human beings, unknown by the human beings? What does God do? And, of course, to give us the opportunity to meditate, to venerate, to worship, to love, to sing, to experience devotion. And because of this, 
you are going to see all those who have been know it already. It's a very, very beautiful event. It's a very, very beautiful night in which we connect. But you can look at it strictly from a yogic standpoint if you are embarrassed by the religious angle, which is a specific Hindu angle indeed. The yogis discovered a window towards the Absolute. That window towards the Absolute, they called it Shiva. That Shiva is the inspiration of the method of yoga which we all practice. And that's why for them it's natural, exactly as the Buddhists want to show their appreciation for Buddha once a year, and the Christians may want to show their appreciation to Jesus once a year, that the yogis want to show their connection, their aspiration towards Shiva at least once a year, and that once a year is the Maha Shiva Ratri. Therefore, for those of you who don't know, we always start late, 9.30, 10 in the evening, because it's the night of Shiva, so we, are, we start after sunset. And then we meditate on the different aspects of Shiva. We sing. Some people dance. We express devotion. And we see what our relationship is with the source of our spirituality the purpose of any yogi in the end of the day is to reach identification, to reach that source, to reach to that source and to come back home, to become one again. That's why it is a night of getting to know Shiva better through this process. I can only invite you to join. It's beautiful. It's very spiritual. And I hope I gave you enough metaphysical explanations to show that it's not just some blind sectarian cultish event. In the end, it is an intelligent attempt to look up, to connect, to be one and for the yogis to celebrate the method of yoga, the science of yoga, the spirituality of yoga, plus all the other millions of collateral benefits which come from yoga, because as you know very well, yoga gives not only the pure spirituality, but a hundred thousand other benefits which we use in our lives. I think that was a coherent enough presentation of what Mahashivaratri is and why we celebrate it in Agama. There will not be any other satsang before it happens on Tuesday evening and that's why you are all invited to come and connect with this source of spirituality. It doesn't destroy in any other way all your other sources of spirituality, 
if you are Jewish or Muslim or Christian or Buddhist or whatever you are, the fact that you look at Shiva as one of the sources of revelation of spirituality is not against any other spirituality. On the contrary, I would think that it enforces, it strengthens any other spiritual manifestation. With this, we will stop for now. Thank you all for joining in this short satsang. Hope to see you. Hope you have a more clear and easy understanding of Mahashivaratri. Hope to see you there. And for the rest, see you along our spiritual investigation here in Agama with the methods of yoga. That will do for tonight.